Well, thanks for coming. It's good to see you. And uh, let's just pray. Father, thank you so much for the joy and privilege of being here. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you for Edward's fire and Lord, his visionary impact. Lord, we feel blessed. Thank you for the joy of worshipping with hundreds of dear friends. Lord, just uh, all the, the ingredients of being here, Father, we're, we're deeply grateful. And Lord, we ask you, would you bless us now as uh, we talk together? Would you guide us along, please, Lord? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We invite your help that what we do together now might be to our good. Lord, it might be helpful, genuinely helpful to us as we press forward. Father, we call on you for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, these kind of things can be done, I'm sure, in lots of different ways. And uh, very often, Wendy and I find ourselves sitting in chairs at the front and taking questions and alternating and so on. We we just felt uh, drawn to do something a bit different this time, but we're more than happy, uh, if we have time before we finish, to... Uh, have question and answer things so that we can scratch where you're itching. Uh, but I felt really stirred when the, the title, which is an unusual title, uh, about building at a time of gospel expansion. I thought, I'm not quite sure what gospel expansion is. Kind of sounds great, doesn't it? Um, but building. And uh, I, my mind turned to something God spoke to me uh, many years ago. I was at a conference and uh, it was the very early days of the charismatic movement, very early days, and the very first time I'd ever been in a meeting where uh, the, the house church guys who we were just beginning to meet, who all had tambourines and were very noisy, and the kind of Anglican renewal guys who were very gentlemanly and quiet came together in this conference, and it was kind of charismatic, but it was in the early days of great sensitivity and weirdness. And uh, actually the conference was very disappointing. And uh, I went to my room to pray, Lord, Lord, I've come all this way, I want to be encouraged. And God drew very, very near uh, and spoke to me from that uh, word in the end of 1 Chronicles and 28, where God speaks to Solomon and says, the Lord has chosen you to build a house, be strong and do it. And uh, it just grabbed me. It's one of those times I'm sure we've all had something similar at different times when verses seem to come out and speak right into your heart. I was kind of trembling in the presence of God. And also remembering, of course, in the Bible when it talks about a house, very often it's a household. And you remember when David said, I want to build a house for you. And God said to David, no, 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 I'm going to build a household, really, for you and your son and all the rest of it. And uh, and I've, I've always lived with that verse that God sort of chosen you to build a household for me. And looking back now over, I guess, some 40 years of ministry, we've seen something of what God has had. And uh, at the time, it was uh, I was just in the very first church I was in. We'd not even started a, an outreach from it. It was very early days. I was a local pastor uh, trying to engage with the Holy Spirit into our church, which was a traditional one, making fairly radical changes, hitting problems, etc. Uh, but that verse really, really gripped me and it always has in prayer, uh, had impact on me. And it's following through from that, really, that I'd just like to highlight a few scriptures and then uh, just do a kind of Bible study with you. And uh, so that's where it's kind of different. 
Uh, hopefully it's helpful. And then Wendy's also feeling she's, God's given her something from Scripture. So we'll, we'll do those. I'll do mine, she'll do hers, and then if we have time for questions, we'll do it. So God said to Solomon, I've chosen you to build a house. And then uh, Second Chronicles, if you just turn over the page from that, um, that call to Solomon, uh, in Second Chronicles chapter 1 uh, and verse 1, Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom and the Lord God was with him. So he established himself. That sounds like a sort of self-made man. It sounds like a guy who's uh, self-promotional, just looking at that phrase, he established himself. But the reality, of course, of course was that uh, Solomon, if you like, uh, had no, uh, no, no appeal. You could ask you, uh, why was Solomon on the earth? You think of his parenthood, you think of David and Bathsheba. I mean, that's, that's where he comes from. And you think, man, you shouldn't even be on the planet. And uh, and it just is such an encouragement, really, to know that when God says, I'm calling you, all those old things that would disqualify, all the things that would say, well, why, what, how am I, uh, what can I bring to the table? And I hope that many of us feel that. You know, who, who I haven't got anything to bring. But unlike the guy I was at school with who said to me when I was sixth form, he said, I'm going into politics. He said, if I can't go into politics, I'm going into the church. And it's like, I'm going to do this thing because I'm going to find somewhere to speak. And uh, I think most of us feel, how did I get called into this? And certainly that, I think, is uh, how you can think for Solomon. You know, why me? Um, but God said, no, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. And I've found terrific encouragement in the theology of God's choice. And I think going, when you think back over years now of longevity, it, for me... The solid certainty that it was God's idea, not mine, is huge. I can't tell you how often, because often when you when you feel so aware of limitation, uh, you feel so you hit problems, you hit setbacks. The consciousness, He is the initiator. He chose us. You did not choose me. I chose you. For me, it's a foundation for praying. It's a foundation for expecting something to happen. I can't. Uh, I can hardly overstate how important it is. And it was on the strength of that, that that Solomon established himself, not because, well, he's the obvious man, but he's the one God said, I've chosen you. So he established himself. Now, it's interesting, if you compare the king's account with the uh, the account in Chronicles, it, it says something very similar in 1 Kings and chapter 2. Thus, the kingdom was established in the hands of Solomon. Uh, seems similar. But if you read, the king's account is much more thorough. And you'll find that in Kings, when it says he established himself, what it means is this, he killed a lot of people. He put to death uh, some of David's key guys who were also wondering if they uh, could have some authority, some power, who could, if they could step up. And uh, you'll find that he had a brother who was uh, the next one in line, Adonijah, was next in line after Absalom. And it says he was a handsome man. You remember how Absalom was a, a handsome man, what his brother was as well. And he made a pitch uh, to be the king. And uh, and he he was put to death uh, by Solomon. Now, obviously, we're not going around killing off people. But in the New Testament, we find where Jesus says, we are to put to death everything else that would be, as it were, on the throne of our lives. Anything else that is lusting for that position, uh, the Bible's very evident. Jesus talks about putting things to death. He himself was 
rigorously committed to what he was doing and he said to people who said well let me just go and bury my father my mother no 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 if you're following me follow me let the dead bury their dead as a kind of ruthlessness to the style of Jesus a call and it's not sentimental there's a ruthless commitment of putting other things to death other preoccupations other things that you might have valued things that you might have prized but you realize are no longer relevant to what matters now if we're going to see what God wants done done and I believe we're looking for that kind of ruthlessness that was there Jesus talks about if your right hand offends you cut it off if your eye offends you tear it out uh, and and it's got a kind of roughness to it but it really is saying I've got to have your life unreservedly other things have to go and if God's going to build something on us that kind of deep foundation work has to be done it's no good our beginning to get into some ministry and maybe beginning to get some profile and this stuff hasn't been dealt with early on because suddenly you can wake up to the fact hey people are listening to you people are taking notice of you and if you've not dealt ruthlessly with these other things that want to really be in your life want to affect your choices want to sit on the throne of your life if you've not dealt with them you're going to come unstuck and there'll be moments there'll be opportunities and you know the books the money sex and power these things will come things will happen things have happened in my life things where you think well that would have been attractive no that you ruthlessly deal with these things and if you're going to build something of stature you've got to be clear about those issues I think they have to be dealt with at the beginning that doesn't mean that's the end of it you may find that you'll get attacked in those areas again but there's got to be a ruthlessness of putting other things to death so that Jesus is king and I think that's hugely hugely important so sometimes we talk about leadership we're talking about techniques we're talking about management styles we're talking about five-year plans we're talking that management is the in thing for leadership these days it's not a very biblical concept but it kind of it's changed over the years you know it was therapy 10 years ago you had to be able to read people's minds and what happened to them when they were children and all kinds of things that happen in the world gets reflected in leadership in the church and the current one is business management so leaders all have to be clever business managers uh, and the bible talks about being a shepherd uh, and there's a, there's a style in the bible that doesn't reflect simply what's happening in the world but the issue has to be a heart issue of your saying yes jesus you have my life you have my life and otherwise we will we will come unstuck and we put to death other things it says if you have died and been raised with Christ put to death the members of your earthly body immorality impurity passion greed which amounts to idolatry putting stuff to death that's how that's how Solomon became king he put other claims to the throne to death and there's a new testament application to that we need to be ruthless we need to have no secret areas and it's a tragedy when people do have secret areas I remember once in South Africa quite a prominent American preacher travelling around and uh, one of the pastors who was hosting him noticed how he was flirting with his daughter and he spoke to him and, and he said well she's very nice and, and then the, this guy said quite openly said God knows I need some tender loving care when I'm on these overseas tours 
and just to build kind of an affectionate relationship. And you've got to be ruthlessly, this is never going to invade. It's absolutely vital and essential. Things are put to death. And this is how he began, okay? So it says in the message translation, Solomon took a firm grip on the reins of his kingdom. He took a firm grip. He looked, he took hold of it. And I love that, that phrase. It says, uh, well begun. Sorry. Yes, well begun is half done. <laughs> well begun is half done. If we can start well, if we can say now, it's not just the desire to be in ministry, not just a desire to be a speaker, not just a desire to have a role, but a desire to walk holy with God and to be ruthless about those things. He established, he established himself and they did that by putting other things to death. Now if you just turn over the page, you'll find in uh, chapter 2 verse 1, it says, he decided to build a house. Now it's interesting how that's translated um, in the ESV, it says he purposed. In the King James, it says he determined. In the NIV, it says he gave orders to build a house. Now, this translation, the NESB, it says he decided. So, how come you know the different translations? He decided, he gave orders. What is that all about? Well, apparently, and I looked it all up. In the Hebrew, it simply says he said. And some of these other translations have assumed if he said it, he said it to somebody. But if you look at it uh, and do a bit of research on it, it's like he said it. It's like he said it to himself. It's like, and that's why they've translated, he decided. He made a statement. He made a decision. I am going to do this thing. I'm going to build this house. for God's chosen me. I'm going to do it. And uh, he had that passion to get that work done. And it, it, it meant making a choice and following it with choices. And I would say that one of the things that's foreign to our modern culture is nailing things down, making decisions. Sometimes people come uh, to to you, to me, at the end of meetings, and sometimes you say, they say, would you pray for me? And you say, well, what, what do you want me to pray? And they'll pray for some vague, or would you pray a blessing? And you think, okay, it's a blessing. But I often pray, Lord, help them to make great choices. Because that's what it's about, really. Making, oftentimes, it's making choices, nailing your colours, being determined, and it's very foreign to their culture. Uh, the, the culture today is you kind of hang loose. Uh, and, uh, you know, it used to be in the past, you'd make an appointment, you stick it in your diary. Uh, whereas these days, it's more, well, I'll see you, give me a call. And it's, you know, well, don't, well, should we nail it? No, call, give me a call, I can call you. It's like, I don't want to be nailed down. Um, and that, that goes right through society. I don't, it's like, you know, the guy says to the girl, would you? And she thinks, it's the moment. He's going to ask me, move in with me. Oh, move in. I thought you were going to say marry. And uh, people are reluctant to nail things. They're reluctant to say, forsaking all others, I give myself. And I think that being decisive is part of leadership. Making choices, yeah, choices that you've thought through, but committing yourself to things. And people feel safe following leaders who make choices, who go by those choices, who stick by those choices when it doesn't look good, when it looks like it's not going to work out so well. He's still committed because he felt, he felt this is a thing to do. And, and I think for people to follow us for some years, 
is the fact, hey, these guys stood by what they said. The vision hasn't changed. The vision is clear. Not that we're not open to God bringing fresh light, but essentially there's a kind of commitment, there's a stability, there's something about these guys that inspire confidence. And it has to do with making choices. It has to do with, I'm going to do this thing. And of course it has to do with being a visionary and having a dream. I don't think you can be a leader without having some kind of dream that God stirred you with, something's inspired you, something's motivated you. And a dream is the sort of thing that motivates you to move from here to there. And as a leader, you tend to be ahead and you live with the dream. It's a bit like Abraham said to Sarah, you know, I've seen a city. You know, why are we leaving Ur of the Chaldees? What are we doing? I've seen a city that has foundations. And then I can imagine, you know, the first night, he's putting up the tent, and she said, what's this? I thought you'd seen a city. But, it, you know, it's because he's seen the city that they can live in the tent. And that's what church planters are like. They've seen something. They believe what's going to happen here. And there's a kind of decided commitment to this thing. And, and, and sometimes the, the visionary leader has seen the city, and the people tend to see the tent. Or it's like Moses says, it's a land of milk and honey. And they're saying, well, why are we eating manna every day then? Well, we're eating manna because I've seen a city, I've seen a land of milk, I've seen something. And, and a leader that's not seen anything doesn't get people moving much. He hasn't committed himself to it. hasn't said, I've got this thing, I'm going to do this. Because why? Well, the Lord has chosen you to do it. It always comes back to, it's not my idea, it's not something I've dreamed up. It's a, it's a vision God's put in my heart. And you live with it, and you're stirred by it, and you move towards it. Now, it's important that we learn as leaders not to get too far ahead. I love watching athletics. I don't know about you. I enjoy athletics. Probably the most emotional sport to watch, I think. But we see sometimes you see pace setters, and they're trying to help these guys break maybe the mile record or something, and they go out too fast, and no one follows them. You know, there goes the two pace setters, and they're half a lap ahead of everybody. It's a waste of time. Because they just got too far ahead. So being decisive, being visionary, being ahead, it's important that we're engaging and drawing people. But if, if we're not ahead, if we're not seeing anything, then what are we? Well, we're just kind of keeping people happy. Uh, and leadership that's just keeping people happy and making sure everything's okay. Okay, you happy? You like us? And, you know... Um, am I meeting your felt needs? And that can characterize some church life these days, meeting felt needs. They build churches on it, discern what felt needs are, and minister to them. And we built this great big church like this. And well, you want to build a great big church, this is it. Find what their felt needs are. But biblical leadership has to do with being on a journey, it's going somewhere, it's uh, shepherding them forward. And uh, here, this man is saying that. He said, I'm going to build this house. I'm going to do it. And it's not about just hanging loose. It's about making good choices. God's chosen me to build a house. I'm going to do it. And that has to be a conviction in the heart. Grows in the heart. I love that thing about Nehemiah. It says, Nehemiah came back to the city. And it, and it says, he, he went round the city. And it was in ruins. And it says this, I had not yet told anyone what was in my heart. But what was in his heart was, we're going to rebuild this. We're going to rebuild this. That was in his heart. It's a crazy thing, is it? Like he said to his boss when he's away in Babylon, I've just heard it's in ruins. And that's what gripped me in the early days. 
I thought, the church, the church, it's supposed to be the bride of Christ. It's so remote, it's so weird. And I thought, Lord, surely you want something better than this. It sort of stirred me in the early days. Lord, you want a better kind of church. You want a completely different kind of church. And that was in my heart. And uh, so you live with this passion. I want to get a church up that looks more like a biblical church. That really loves the scripture, loves the presence of God. And I can't move in this old kind of church I'm in. I can't, I can't really respect scripture because, well, we've never done it that way. I can't really open up to the spirit because, well, what are you doing? And so, no, we must build another kind of church. I want a church where the spirit can move, where we really obey the scriptures. You know, you get a passion about it. We've got to do this thing. And it began to drive us and it moved us on. So that you make decision, I'm going to do this, I'm going to build this. And beloved, I think that's, how do you build, which is the, the title of the thing, building. Well, you know, you feel like God has called me. God started this thing. Why call me? Goodness knows. God's chosen the weak things, the foolish things. I always come back to that verse. Lord, you said you chose the foolish. So Lord, it's your problem, come on. And now, now, what, now I'm going to do this thing because you've commissioned to do it. I'm going to make this step. I'm going to lead into it. I'm going to lead into it. So that's the second thing we see. He, he decided, he determined. He determined to do it. He said, I'm going to do this thing. Is that in your heart? I'm going to do this thing. We're moving to X town, B town. We're going to make this thing happen. Because why? Well, the Lord's chosen me. I'm going to make it happen. So that's the next thing we see. Then if you turn over the page again with Solomon... You see at the next verse, it says, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Chronicles 3, 1. It says, he began, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, uh, where the Lord had appeared to David, a place where David had prepared the threshing floor, and so on. And uh, it says in the, in the second verse, he began on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. And then it says, now these are the foundations which Solomon laid for building the house of God. The length in cubits, according to the old standard, was 60 cubits, and the width, 20 cubits. Okay, so this is the next step. First, he established it. Secondly, he determined, he established his reign, he determined to build. Next thing that happened was, he began to build. It's one thing having a dream, it's the next Thing, beginning to build and it's a hugely important thing you begin to build you see the church can't be led by dreamers in the end you've got to be a builder you've got to start building and did you notice directly you start talking about building the very next verse talks about dates and then the next verse talks about cubits in other words the deadly boring stuff of turning up on the day and measuring the cubits. And so the sort of things that drive dreamers mad, I've dreamed this. Uh, what are you going to do about Oh, no, no, I've dreamed it. I think I, I'm going to, this is my dream. A dream has to be changed to, I turn up every Thursday night and make this happen. So you'll find people in your ranks, I feel I could be this. Okay, if you want to be this, there's a training program. A training program? What does that mean? You have to come for 20 weeks Oh, 20 weeks, come on, come on. And and you've got to understand, you can't build with dreamers. It's wonderful to have a dream. Nehemiah had a dream. I'm going to build this city. Then he starts getting dates and cubits. 
It's got to be practical. You've got to start working. You've got to start turning up. You've got to start the hard work. And, and that translating your exciting vision to actually doing the stuff. Training children when you're raising a family. Training them. Turn them. Say, no, no, that is unacceptable, son. That, that won't work. We won't have that. But, oh, no, no, we won't do that. You're not going to do that. You have to lie, draw some boundaries. You have to have, hey, we want to build a home. We're going to build a family. There are going to be some principles, some boundaries that they understand where they are. See, there was a thing on t- news just a few weeks ago, a woman who said his, I think, teenage child had sent pictures of himself on, the, on, uh, on social media, uh, disgusting pictures. And the woman's quoted in the press. She said, what can you do? As a parent, what can you do? It's like, well, that's not our testimony. You know, you've got to put some place things in line because you're building a home and you're building a church and you've got to build principles and, and it's not vague. It's wonderful to live with a dream, but a dream's got to be substantiated, it's got to be nailed down and, and cubits start, you know, you think, I've got to be there. It's like people say, well, I'd love to go on such and such a thing. You say, have you learned the language? Language? I have to learn a language? See, we've just, uh, one of the elders of the church I've been in the last four years in Kingston, he and his wife and four little children have moved to Istanbul. And he knows, first two years, get the language down. I mean, it's hard work. Get the language. And then just learn to, and then two years on, I went out to be there on the Sunday prior to going public. And they had a, a kind of run just privately, like next week's public meeting. They've been there two years. They had to work at it, work at it, work at it. And uh, just a few neighbors wanted to come and a few friends. So we had about 25 people. But, I mean, the dream has to be substantiated. You can't say, what do you mean you're going to plant a church? Well, we like people. We're going to move off to Istanbul. Maybe we'll make some contacts. No, no. You don't just drift in and think, well, maybe. There's got to be some thinking, some planning. Have you ever planted a church in England? Uh, no, I thought I'd do one in Istanbul. What? I remember when Pete Corpas said, I want to go and plant a church in, in um, uh, Cyprus. And Ray Lowe said to him, have you planted one in England yet? Said, no, well, I'll plant one in England first then. So he got him to plant one in Oxford so he could learn. I mean, it's not a game. You could learn. And so this, there's a kind of practical detail of taking responsibility. Otherwise, we go as dreamers. We think the dream will do it. But this is saying, no, no, you have to nail things down. There have to be dates, cubits. It's, that, it's, that, it's the practical thing that turns dreaming into something established. And notice this too. Nehemiah had no opposition as a dreamer. No one threw stones at him when he was dreaming. He got opposition when he started building. And that's how it was for us. I had the privilege of speaking at a conference in Poland last week. 750 evangelicals from 40 uh, European nations. It was a kind of conservative evangelical, mostly reformed guys, not really very open to the charismatic. Uh, yeah, I got invited to speak. And uh, I, had, I had the first session, a German guy introduced me. He said, I didn't think I'd get the, uh, the privilege of introducing a guy who's led a, meet, a movement of a 1,500 churches in 70 nations. Ooh, you know. And you think, oh my, that's helpful. And so I got a really good hearing, a really good hearing. I was able to really say some fairly firm things. And then I was in another seminar, I was about discipling, I talked about apostles and how things had grown. 
saying some fairly radical things, but it was very well received, very well received. And then the guy who was hosting my seminar said, how long has that taken? So I said, oh, look, I'm telling you in half an hour, it took 40 years. He said, I expect you had some opposition, didn't you? And I think, wow, did we? At the moment in England, it's like those rather bitter days have gone. But I remember, I remember articles written about us. I remember articles that, that put my name along the guy, that guy Jones, who took off a, a whole group to South America. And they, it was a great corporate suicide. He led this cult into suicide. And I saw my name in two articles in two magazines. Terry Virgo leads a cult like that. I mean, when we started building and churches are starting and churches are starting and the Downs Bible Week's pressing up through the thousands and then Stonely's beginning and people, what's going on here? We started and we went through, I would say, maybe 15 years of heavy hostility. Heavy hostility. And it's when you begin to build, when you begin to build, I, sp- I was asked to speak at the Evangelical Alliance. You know, what are your values? I spoke about restoration values. That was in the mid-80s. And uh, when I'd finished, I mean, the place was packed. When I'd finished, there were some guys in the front row, and uh, they were Anglicans, and they had a beef with Bryn Jones, who was doing something similar to us in the north of England. And this guy really went for me. I mean, Bryn wasn't there, so he went for me. He really, who gave you the right to start churches? And uh, uh, I was beginning, he said, Bryn Jones. I said, no, no, Bryn's a great builder. He, he, said, he said, well, if he's a builder, I wish he would stop using my bricks, he said. <laughs> so, so a guy from the front shouted out, brother, perhaps you shouldn't leave your bricks lying around. <laughs> it was, the, atmosphere, the atmosphere was hot. And we had to come through... You know, and sometimes you plant a church. What are you doing? We're already in this town. And when we first started planting churches, you know, it's a parish system in the UK. So you're in someone else's parish straight away. Or somebody else is planting. Or so, and so, you know, you do get things thrown at you. And, 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 and here he, he began to build. When you begin to build, you hit problems. But you've got to get into building. You've got to say, no, it's meaning turning up, being there, seeing it through. Ed Cole said this, people think maturity comes with age. No, growing old comes with age. Maturity comes with taking responsibility. So we have to take responsibility. We have to say, no, that's what I'm going to do. I nail my colours to it. I begin to apply. I work at it. Wendy and I were at a conference, uh, New Word Alive in Wales, a little while back. And uh, as we're standing in the food line... I saw a couple, and I, I, I thought, I've seen that guy. Where's that guy? And uh, he was the head student when we were at London Bible College. And I remember going to his, his room uh, in my first year. I went to ask him something. I went into his room, and all around his room, these little yellow stick-on things. And uh, I thought, what is that? And it was Japanese hieroglyphics, and then the English underneath. And so all around his room, over the mirror and stuff, there's Japanese words with the English. I said, wow, this is impressive. (laughs) And uh, anyway, we went our separate ways. Hadn't seen him for 40 years since we left LBC. And and, and I said to Wendy, that's that's Ralph and Elsa. You know, the same people, face 40 years older, like Elsa. And uh, I said, Ralph, 
hey, what you been doing? He said, oh, we've just come back. We've been serving God in Japan for 40 years. He thought, wow, that started with bits of paper. You know, learning Japanese. 40 years. It's impressive. You, know, you begin to build. You begin to build. You begin to learn. You begin to build, for him, language. I mean, you've got to begin to build a prayer life. Oh, prayer's hard. No, no, you've got to try and build. We know, we're grace people. We, don't, we know we're accepted through grace. Amen? We, we have a free gift of righteousness. I'm not trying to impress God by, you know, I'm clocking up some hours. Hey, I'm, no, no. But we've got to learn to pray. You've got to build a prayer life. You're building a prayer life. You have to build a theological knowledge. When I first left secular work, I started doing door-to-door evangelism. I realized I hardly knew anything. Uh, and I'd not been to any kind of college, so I bought myself a Burkhoff systematic theology. And uh, what Peter Lewis calls deep frozen Burkhoff. And uh, <laughs> it really was like that. And you're know, sort of writing notes, you know, Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Okay. Trinity, you know, you're learning, you're trying to build up, build up, build up, build up knowledge so you're safe, you're theologically wise, you understand. I've always tried to keep reading, keep learning, I'm still reading, I've just bought, enjoyed a book on Leviticus, I mean, who would have thought you'd enjoy a book on Leviticus? <laughs> but I'm trying, all the time, I'm trying to build, build a knowledge for the flock so you feed them well and you're building up your own soul. Build our knowledge, build our prayer life, build a family, build a family that knows what what the standards are, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. We're building. We have to translate our vision into building, and it means it means boring things like cubits and dates. It means you go and you see it through. You go through it and you do it. Okay. So he be, he started as a dreamer. He dreamed like Nehemiah. He finished as a builder. Then the last one, 2 Chronicles 5, all right, it jumps to 5. 1, 2, 3, and then to 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Thus all the works that Solomon performed for the house of the Lord was finished. That's a good word, finished. You know, we can, we, we can start things. Do we finish them? Do we see them through? It's not easy to start something but then abandon the dream when I was first at London Bible College I used to get sent to me every year just news of the guys in my year and the whole year you know when it first started the whole year of what they were doing and what pastorates they were and each year that list got shorter and shorter and shorter until I mean it doesn't come anymore <laughs> but years in it was like down to two still in ministry incredible started all this training and rushed it down to just a couple still in ministry you know you can begin it's funny when I uh, when you, Wendy and I we have a daughter in Cape Town of course we've got a wonderful church in Cape Town where Simon Pettit used to be and so we go to Cape Town from time to time and uh, in the middle of Cape Town if you've ever been there you'll know what I'm talking about there's a flyover that stops it's right in the middle of the town, really. It's like, hey, whoa! And there's no, no one's working there. There's no cranes or anything. It's just stopped. I think, wow, that's amazing. The road comes along, we finished. And uh, I, I, I wrote to my daughter at one point. I said, 
Can you send me a picture of that? Because it's kind of vivid. And um, her husband, Stephen Fenrain, he sent. He said, here's a website, go to a website. I went to his website. There are pictures of half-finished bridges, flyovers from all over the world. All these things have been started and never finished. And it's, it's pretty vivid, isn't it? And the stuff we've got in our garage, you started it, wow. But th- this, is, this is impressive, that he finished. He finished. You see, there are many, many things that can stop you finishing. Things that, well... You know, there are distractions. This is, Paul says about Demas, who's mentioned two or three times in his epistles. The last time he's referred to, he's to my fellow worker. My meal, fellow worker with Paul. And he says, he's forsaken me, having loved this passing age, this present world. Suddenly, it, it caught his eye. And he's out of here. Demas started, but he didn't finish. He didn't finish. And finishing is very important. Running to the very end. Keeping on course. And there are many things. Disappointments. The things that can take you out. And, uh, you know, some of us have been around long enough to see guys who thought, wow, he's running well. And then you look, you think, where's he gone? Where's he gone? And, and there, are, there are these temptations that can take people right out. I remember a guy who uh, was a leader of a movement and a big church in the UK going back some decades now. And he had a pumping church, so he was writing great music and, and he, led a, he led a movement. And he had, a, he had a, a serious battle with cancer. And I remember he, he, he went through it. And I was at a meeting with a number of uh, movement leaders and uh, people were talking about him and said, well, he won't turn up because he's... And he walked in. He'd come through... He's doing fine, and, and he's right through. And uh, his hair, he's just beginning to grow again. And, you know, and, and, and he's bright. And I, I said, wow, how did that go? He said, well, I, I knew about all the healing verses and all that. He said, I said to God, will you speak to me? And he, used, he said, I just locked myself into John's gospel. Please speak to me. And he said, God gave me a verse. I can't remember what it was. And he said, I clung to that, clung to that, clung to that. And he was right through. And I thought, wow, so impressive. I thought, I thought this guy really knows God. The next year, he left his wife and went off with another girl. And then he left home and went off with another girl. And that movement doesn't exist anymore. When he was leading a movement of churches, he didn't finish well. And we just need to be diligent, dear brothers and sisters. Diligent, not to, not to suddenly find, oh, where did he go? What happened? And, and it says of Solomon, he finished. So, yeah, there are setbacks, all kinds of things. And you don't do that sort of thing without treading over your conscience. And Paul says about certain people, they, because they didn't listen to conscience, they made shipwreck. I read that the, the captain of the Titanic was warned there would be ice. But this was the biggest and most, well, the most powerful ship ever built. It was his last crossing of the Atlantic. He wanted to get the world record for crossing the Atlantic. On his, he was about to retire, and he ignored. He ignored the warnings. And and and, and people don't walk into stuff like that without 
they're overstepping over conscience they're not, they're not listening to conscience that doesn't happen without God saying hey what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing we have to learn to be obedient to be careful because we want to finish well don't we we don't want to say whatever happened to him, whatever happened to her or sometimes it's just disappointment or sometimes it's workaholic, you drive yourself and you haven't really grasped grace there are all sorts of things that can stop people finishing well but it's so important, it says of this one that he finished the work, he finished the work and uh, it says about Paul in Acts 20 when they tried to stop him going down to Jerusalem he said, I don't count my life as of any value or as precious to myself if I might just finish my course finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, we should count that so dear beloved We've got to be ruthless and stay ruthless because we want to finish it. Because Jesus is a, a wonderful example, isn't he? That he, he is the called one. He, you put Jesus in all of this. He, he was ruthlessly clear from the beginning. Father said, this is my chosen. He's the one. He's the chosen one. He, his kingdom was established. Satan tried to take him out right at the beginning. No, 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 no. No, he's established, he's clear, he's visionary, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And then he began to gather his disciples. He was very, very clear. He did this thing. And then at the end, you get that wonderful thing. We get it in John 4 initially, when, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and the disciples who've got some picnic, you know, they come to him and said, have you had anything to eat? He said, this is my meat, to do the will of him who sent me and to finish. The word finish there means accomplish, bring to conclusion. This is my meat. I want to do it <laughs> to the end. This is my meat, to finish the work he's given me to do. And then you get that wonderful thing in John 17, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And then, of course, the third time Jesus uses that word is from the cross. It is finished. And I, I don't think that's a cry of, ah, you know, I'm finished. It's kind of, a, it's a shout of victory. It's done. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. There can't be anything more glorious than at the end of your life to be able to say, I did the thing you gave me to do. You see, you can model yourself on somebody else. I'd love to be Billy Graham, you know. I'd love to be Jackie Bullinger. But how do we glorify him? We do the work he's given us to do. I glorify him. I finish the work he gave me to do. So these are things that I know have stirred me. I see them vividly in the story of Solomon in these opening chapters. And I just wanted, I felt, to do this a bit differently to normal and nail it into scripture in a particular way. See Solomon as the example, but all, every step is relevant to us. Every step. That we might, we might be like Jesus. Sadly, in the end, Solomon didn't do well. Sadly. But our Jesus, one greater than Solomon, is here. And he's in us. He's in us. He's in us to motivate us. He's in us. He says, work out your salvation. God's at work in you. So we have the Spirit of Christ. We've got the ambition of Christ. We have his ability to work it through us. We have his, his grace is enough for us. So we just have to make good choices, keep the focus, keep visionary, 
keep ahead of the pack, but winning them and drawing them into what God has for us. Making really cl- clear steps towards it. And not abandoning, not abandoning. And seeing it through to the end. Amen? So these are some of the things I wanted to bring. Now, Wendy's got uh, something she wants to share, and then we'll, uh, we've, we'll see what time we have at the end. We've still got plenty of time. Right, well, for, uh, Proverbs 14.1 says, The wise woman builds. And I uh, could do a whole thing about that. This as well. Yeah, okay. The wise woman uses a mic as well when it's a seminar. So uh, we could do a whole lot about that. But I, I just thought I'd pick out three particular things that I thought would be helpful, particularly with any um, wives here of, of leaders, or just uh, leaders anyway. And um, I want to enlarge on something that Terry's been majoring on, which is the whole thing about vision, because I think um, that is one of the, the lodestones, if you like, of longevity in the ministry and of uh, uh, stability. And he mentioned that right at the beginning, we felt, or at least Terry felt that God commissioned him to build a house for God. And I think it's important that for any woman who is involved with uh, leading a church um, or into any sort of leadership, her vision has to be united with her husband. You need to own that vision for yourself and be excited by it. And uh, I remember as we began to explore, what did it mean to build a house for God? What, what This house is obviously the church. We began to explore uh, what it was like in the New Testament as the, the early church began to take shape. And we realized that what we were seeing in England was a far cry from what was happening in the New Testament. And we would have to start with a whole new model. And so it was a bit like painting by numbers. It's like, well, what do you do next? What's this color? Oh, yeah, we'll put that in and then we'll try this one. Ooh, that kind of doesn't quite work there. And uh, and we had to learn bit by bit as we read, particularly through the Acts, a lot. But... I'd like just to pick up this thing about vision because the vision was really for the city of God. And uh, there's so many cities now that I've been in in the world which I love. I love visiting cities. And this is a nice city, isn't it? Norwich is a really nice city. And uh, one of those um, programs that comes on the television, it's location, 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 isn't it? Uh, and Psalm 48 particularly talks about the vision for the city. So I'm just going to pick out some things here. I love this psalm because it's so, so pictorial. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And so it goes on. So I think um, what I'd like to pick out first is the, the, the actual, what the objective vision of the city. What does it look like from a distance? What do our churches look like to people who've never been inside, who've never been a member of a church, who've never been part of it, who don't know what it's like? Are we making it so that they think, I've got to go into that city. I want to see what it's like. I uh, I loved it when we were in Shrewsbury last year, and it's a bit like Norwich in that it's got a, a river right round it, and the castle and the cathedral right in the middle of it, and it's beautifully situated. And here we have location, location, location. 
The city of our God is beautiful in its loftiness. It was in a beautifully beautiful place. It was visible. It was prominent. And uh, this isn't just obviously for us uh, building churches that are, are massive buildings, although that helps a lot. Um, but it's about how does this infiltrate into the community? What influence does it have in a town or a city? What is our vision for it? And I think I'm glad that we began in a very small scale in a very small town because our vision was very un, uh, unformed at the time. All we knew was we had to build this house. What was it supposed to look like? It's a good job that we started sort of small and gradually it took shape and kind of expanded. Our understanding grew but began to realize that the city that God envisaged, his dwelling place, is to be prominent, it is to be visible, it is to be attractive, it is to be influential in the earth. And that's what we wanted. We didn't want to be a, a little backstreet place. I come from the Brethren, and in my childhood, I remember being in Brethren assemblies. We were always in some obscure back street in a, in a, a, a building that looked more like an air raid shelter than anything else. And not, not inviting, not dynamic, not exciting. Now, I, I thank the Brethren for many things, not least their, their um, love of the Word of God. But uh, I needed to learn a whole new understanding of the importance of church life. And the, the picture of a city was exciting. So you get the actual location that it's prominent, it's visible. Now, not all of our churches are, obviously, when they start off, but that's what we should be aiming for, that we have such a place in our community, in our towns, that we are known. And um, I've, I'm so grateful that many of our churches now uh, are warmly received in their their towns and cities because they are infiltrating and beginning to change the culture, beginning to make uh, inroads into injustices and difficulties. But that is one of the uh, the aims of building the city is that it should be prominent, and then it is to be beautiful. It is to be inviting. And further down in this psalm, it talks about the whole cityscape. Some cityscapes are, are recognisable from a distance, aren't they? Like Toronto with its its spire thing, and of course London with a gherkin, and sadly Jerusalem it now has a, the, the prominent mosque right in the middle of it. Um, but many cityscapes are beautiful from a distance, aren't they? They draw you. They're they're, they're beautiful, uh, beautiful pictures. But here also it says, when kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they were astounded and fled in terror. And I think we will get eventually to the point where our churches are not only um, beautiful, inviting and welcoming, but there's something um, to those who are, are bent on, on crookedness and wickedness, uh, there's something frightening about the holiness of the church of God, something beautiful about the purity of, of the people that belong. And we, I pray for that day that our churches will be powerful in their own right. We're not obviously talking about um, political power and that sort of thing, but we are talking about a spiritual influence that is able to combat what goes on in our cities. But then... Um, that's the exterior, if you like. But then as you come into the city gates, 
and you see and become part of that community. The important thing is that within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. The centre of the city is the presence of God. And if our churches aren't cultivating a sense of the presence of God, then they will become a shell. They'll become performances. They will become uh, places of of tradition and uh, maybe goodwill. But uh, the power comes from cultivating the presence of God. That has to be central. But I like it too that in verse 12, there's an invitation. Walk around Zion. Come on, with this bears scrutiny, this city. Uh, we, can, we can examine it. We can have a look. What's going on in it? Walk about. Go around her. Count her towers. And I began to think, what are the towers in our churches? What are those prominent things that make it what it is, that make it, that stand out? And uh, one thing which towers above all else, of course, is the cross, which is a symbol of the gospel, the cross of Christ uh, that we've heard about so powerfully today from Edward and other preachers that we need to keep remembering the power of the gospel is the heart of our church life. That is a a prominent tower. And then the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's one of my favourite verses, that the righteous run into it and are safe. The sense of owning the name of God and uh, that becoming around about us as a strong tower. A watchtower, as in Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 5, which symbolises prayer and intercession. That's another tower. And um, then just one more thing about um, this vision. Um, Zechariah 8 talks about that it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the city of God as a safe place. It talks about the old and young are able to be safe. The old, it talks about them, uh, the old walking there with their walking sticks and their canes and the children playing in the streets. And there's a sense of this being multi-generational and a safe place for all age groups that the old aren't despised and the young are given uh, given spa- space to grow and uh, it's a safe place. And this is what we also need to see in our churches. So the sense of vision, um, we began with this vision of building a place for God. And I think this is one of the things which has held us through. It hasn't changed. It, well, it's changed in the sense it's enlarged and got more detailed. But um, I don't think we've ever departed from that, that beginning mandate from God, build a house for God. And so we, we could have got deflected into other things. Now, I'm not saying that other things are wrong because you may be called to be involved in social action, um, in teaching, in all sorts of uh, aspects of church life. But a church leader has got to somehow hold a fully orbed picture together and have the skill to integrate all these things to be part of a, of a fully orbed church, a fully orbed city, a city with lots of aspects. That's part of its beauty is the diversity of it. And, uh, so for me, vision was very important in our, uh, in, in our life together, really, as we have prayed and talked and built and made friendships and moved from place to place. We're looking for the city of God. How is it displayed here? Are the uh, people, skilled people here? Can we help them to build a little bit more efficiently? Things like that. 
Then the second thing I would like to um, bring into play here is personal stability. How do we uh, deal with that? How do we maintain stability over a long time? And uh, Psalm 91 for me is special here. Sorry, Psalm 92. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God and will still bear fruit in old age. They will still stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. This is such an encouraging verse as you get older, isn't it? Uh, But it... It says they will grow uh, and will continue to flourish in old age. But they didn't start old. (laughs) They started young, but got down roots well in, uh, into the ground for where they were planted. And again, location, location, location. Where is this tree planted? It's planted in the courts of the Lord. It's planted in the house of God. This is where it belongs. This is its dwelling place. This is where it doesn't move from because trees don't walk about. They stay where they're planted. So I found that quite helpful, actually, that um, I'm planted there and uh, I can't pull myself up. (laughs) I want to stay there and I will stay there because that's where I am planted. Um, But also, they, they flourish and to me, that speaks of health and vigor. It's not that as you grow older, you get more withered, more decayed, and more kind of barren and, and, and brown. This isn't a brown tree, it's a green tree. And trees just keep doing what they do. They keep pushing out leaves and they keep pushing out fruit. Because of where they are, and because of the very nature of what they are, of their identity, they will keep being fruitful. And I find that incredibly encouraging as I get older, that um, I, I am still a tree in the house of God. I'm not going to be something else. And um, uh, that, that trees, by their very nature, they, they are shade-bearing, they are fruit-giving, they, they contribute to the, to the landscape just by being who they are. You don't have to try hard. The the tree isn't trying desperately hard to be fruitful. It just is. And its roots, if its roots are are well down in the, in the good soil of the house of God. And, um, by very nature of who they are and where they are, they're saying something. They're saying, God is faithful. He is my rock. And so, um, stability comes from um, getting your roots down deep, keeping those roots down deep, and having that faith that because of my identity in God, I will be fruitful. I remember early on in our married life, um, uh, one day coming across Psalm 128, and again, that also gave me faith, because it says, this is how it'll be for those who fear the Lord, who walk in his ways. So I thought, that's my husband. He fears God and walks in his ways. He will eat the fruit of his labors. Blessing and prosperity will be his. And his wife will be a fruitful vine. So I thought, oh, that's good. I will. I will be a fruitful vine. I mean, I choose to want to be, but I will be anyway. I have faith for that. Because my husband is a righteous man who fears God, and I'm with him. So we will be fruitful. And uh, it wasn't like I had to try hard. I had faith for that. 
Um, so uh, it's really having faith in God's word, isn't it? The last thing that I would just like to uh, say has contributed to, um, I think, longevity again, is having a pilgrim heart. And I'd like us to look at one more psalm, just for a few, uh, five minutes or so, um, and then we'll stop for any contributions for anybody else. But I remember one day um, getting really fed up. You don't ever have that, do you? Um, but uh, I think, you know, for pastors' wives, sometimes we get fed up because our husbands are out doing stuff and they're traveling or going to exciting places and doing things for God and we're stuck at home pushing a broom around the kitchen or whatever. And I, that's exactly what I was doing. I was banging around the kitchen with a broom, feeling fed up. And, um, and then suddenly into my mind came this verse, Valley Valley of Barker. I thought, what's that? Where does that come from? So I went and looked it up and found it was in this psalm. And it starts so beautifully, how lovely is your dwelling place? Sorry, 84, beg your pardon, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place? Exactly what we've just been talking about, the city of God, beautiful, lovely place to be. And even the sparrows found a place and so da 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 um, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Well, I thought, well, that's me. I did. I set my heart on pilgrimage. I was going to go somewhere. I've got vision. We're going to build a house for God. We're off. We're going. And then, whoops, as they pass through the valley of Barker. Oh, dear. I wasn't expecting that. And uh, suddenly you find yourself in this valley, and the Valley of Barker is actually the place of weeping, I discovered. And it's like a desert. I began to think about that. What's it like being in the desert? Well, the obvious, it's very dry, it's arid, it's boring. Um, Also, you can begin to panic because you tend to go around in circles. And then you panic some more because you think, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm stuck. I'm stuck in this forever. I can't see the end of it. You lose direction, you lose vision, you lose, at least you're you're tempted to lose vision. But, uh, and then you think, how did I get into this? I must have done something terrible. But actually, it's those who set their hearts on pilgrimage, it's just part of the journey. I think we need to be reminded of that from time to time, that, that we all... As part of the journey, we go through times of barrenness, dryness, and it's not necessarily because we've sinned. It's part of the journey. And it's part of testing us. Do we still have that vision? Do we still believe that we are trees planted in the house of God? Mixing my metaphors very much here. Uh, But we still have to walk through dry patches, difficult patches, boring patches. Church planting is not glamorous. And neither is it always exciting. And uh, that may be repudiating everything that's going on in this conference because it all seems to be incredibly exciting. But it isn't always exciting. Sometimes it's very mundane indeed. And uh, you're trudging through this desert thinking everybody else is having an exciting time except me. It must be something wrong. But what I took heart from was that it says, as they pass through... You see, you're supposed to go through it. It doesn't say as they camp out. 
and then they die. It says, as they pass through. You will go through. You will get through. But how do you get through? Well, in the NIV here, it says, they make it a place of springs. Sometimes you have to jolly well dig out the water. It isn't always just springing up spontaneously and wonderfully. You have to jolly well do what you have to do. You have to keep going to that boring house group. You have to keep reading the Bible. You have to keep praying. You have to keep going to the prayer meeting. You do what you have to do because that's where the water is and you dig it out. And sometimes it doesn't taste that good either. But it's the difference between life and death. And sometimes, you know, it's a half a cup of brackish water, but it'll keep you going. And so uh, you sometimes we just trudge through, trudge through that desert, but we pass through it. And then the autumn rains come because suddenly the Lord comes and we can't control when he comes. We can't decide when those autumn rains come. We just know it's going to be sometime in the autumn. Haven't come yet, but we're waiting for the autumn rains. And then suddenly torrential rain. You know, and he surprises us. And I think we have to learn we can't control when God shows up, even if we're church planting, even if we're doing Alpha courses, if we're doing all of these extraordinary things, and then suddenly God surprises us. And we have to keep on believing we're working together with him. And we, we also are recipients as much as the people we're serving. We are also in a time of need. And I've so often uh, prayed that verse where it talks about uh, Jesus being a great high priest um, who uh, we find mercy and grace to help in a time of need. And I would say to him, Lord, I'm in a time of need. I need mercy and grace. And we're always in need of that, aren't we? So um, as much as the people we're serving, we need to know our vulnerability in God. And so the awesome rains come and cover it with pools so that all of a sudden we think, wow, how did I think it was so dry around here? It's it gets fun again and you go on and the joy comes back and you know the sense of the presence of God again. And, uh, and then it says the whole point of it is that we shall see God. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. That's what keeps us going, isn't it? That sense of, of hope to come, of, of uh, knowing that there is um, there is vision ahead. There is a hope for us. And the expectation is that we will make it and we will see God. Um, so that's that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, I think we've probably caught it an hour or so to go, and uh, maybe we can uh, sit on here. Oh, right. Can you me? Maybe there are questions that you'd like to ask, and uh, we'll try to answer them. question then, sometimes we get this thing, please repeat the question, um, what are the, our tips for um, helping one another 
uh, as a team and in marriage. Uh, I'll say one tip, and you can say some more tips. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I really do feel it's important from the beginning that we understand uh, our expectations of one another. I think having clear grounds at the beginning that uh, we, re we know our different roles, uh, what people call being complementarian, uh, big word for saying we've got different roles uh, that complement one another. We're not both trying to be the same thing. We, we celebrate the fact that God uh, vive la difference, you know, and uh, we, we have a different uh, contribution to make uh, and uh, that we're here to serve and help one another. And I think, I think just to be clear from the beginning so that you're not having conflict uh, because, you no, know, yeah, it's my role to lead, it's my role to care for Wendy, it's her role to bring what she brings to that in terms of her vision, her prophetic, her energy. Uh, we, have a, we have different roles. I think that's one of the tips that we, I think we, before we, you know, when we started getting to know one another, um, I, I really thank God that actually she did come from a Christian home, so she understood mm. biblical principles of family. I didn't. I, I was learning all of that. Um, but I think that, that that's important for a starting place. I'm not sure how to, how to phrase this in a delicate way, so perhaps I won't. Um, I'm going to say what C.J. Mahaney's wife said. Is that all right? Good sex, <laughs> or just sex? <laughs> no, I think it's important to say that out loud. And um, we, uh, church leaders, are our people. They are husbands and wives, and men and women, and they need each other the same as any other men and women do, even more so. And of all people on in the earth, Christians should be the best at loving each other because we are the ones who understand what it's all about because it's a wonderful, wonderful picture of something that God has initiated that's come out of heaven because of the Trinity um, being, uh, being one blessed uh, per uh, person. And we are to mirror that in our marriage. And so we should be able to celebrate one another and, and have sexual relationships with joy and work at it and love each other. And particularly when our husbands are uh, disappointed and need help, that's a good way to help them. And uh, vice versa, work at it. Don't, don't think that we're super spiritual people. Okay. Mm, brilliant. I'm all for that. Can't take her anywhere. Question about dealing with disappointment, but um, <laughs> <laughs> other than which, which is what, how do you um, help us in terms of dealing with disappointment when you have things that don't go according to plan and so on? Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear it. The sounds coming from funny angles. How do you deal with disappointment when things don't go to plan and so on? Yeah, no, I think it's very real, thanks. Uh, how do we handle disappointment? Though I think it's important not to be super spiritual. 
in the terms of uh, I see no disappointment I see no problems and uh, I I think that worship is such a key and uh, I think that when Joshua came to Jericho he wasn't such a man of faith that he said I see no walls you know what walls what are you talking about I, I can imagine when when Joshua looked at Jericho it says it was walled to heaven man alive what's this uh, and then Satan says you know he says uh, Moses uh, Moses has gone you know and Jordan's closed behind you and did you notice the manna stopped yesterday <gasps> and, and, then, and then it says the, the, the captain of the host of the Lord stood there and uh, he he worshipped him and uh, and I remember when I saw that early on I was still at Bible college actually and I wrote on a, on a card, I stuck it on my notice board in my room, are you standing worrying, because I imagine him looking at Jericho from my morning devotions, or are you kneeling worshipping? And I, and I honestly feel that to keep your focus on worshipping Jesus, I felt God said to me, even before Bible college, I did two years of door-to-door, which was a killer, I hated it, it was hard. And I felt God said to me, I've called you to be a worshipper. That's your first calling. Mm. Uh, you know, so let my people go that they might worship me. God is seeking what? Worshippers. And so f- I felt no, that's my c- first calling. And it puts disappointment in perspective. So Wendy and I now are living with disappointment about our house move. You know, we, think, we thought we'd be moved by April. And then we still have no news. And each day I look at my phone and there's some news. And so you, uh, the house moving is a pain in England, isn't it? You, you know, are they sold? What's he doing? And then you think, what's going on? And so you, you, I found I'm, I'm having to worship. Uh, and if I don't get my spirit focused on Jesus, you know, this is my latest challenge. And I, well, I get worried about this. And so for me, worshiping, focusing, knowing you're faithful, you've promised, we put it before you, your timing's perfect. You know, I have to keep refreshing my mind around those truths, and I find them okay. But it's like I have to do it. If I don't do it, whatever the thing is at the moment, it could be mostly often in church life and things we're doing. We we have many buffetings that can disappoint. It's a very good question. It's it's a challenge. There are many disappointments. You know, I've seen so often people start go church planting, and the key second couple who are coming with us suddenly they're not coming. I mean, all sorts. So you think, wow, what? And a friend of mine, I asked him to move from Ozarks to St. Louis when we left America. I said, I would, I would you plant a church in St. Louis? There's a little group there. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. It was a courageous step. And he moved, and the group collapsed completely. He thought, ah, what happened? Now he's built a great church, but he has come right through that disappointment. They're into some hundreds now, but it was tough. And I think disappointment's part of the game, part of the battle um, and I think as Wendy was talking about, you know, you dig in to get the fresh, the fresh. I love this, that scripture says these, who are these two sons of fresh oil? Mm. And that's something we try and remember in prayer. We want to be children of fresh oil. We're getting fresh stuff from Jesus all the time because events will often disappoint, but he never will. But you must make it real. I had a very um, 
disappointing experience. I was speaking at the Assemblies of God annual Donald G. lecture last year. Uh, Donald G. was one of their great teachers, and um, they had this annual lecture. And I was asked to go and tell the story of New Frontiers. And I was staying overnight with a, a researcher, and he's researching um, Pentecostal history. And he said to me, just conversation, because I was fascinated, I thought the most amazing prophecy. And he said, our research would indicate to us that probably Wigglesworth never said it. Somebody said it, but... Um, I'm not going to believe it. So, <laughs> so he said, the reason, I mean, he's a historian. He said, the first reference you'll find to it is so long after he died that you'd think it would have resurfaced before. So I think it was like 20 or 25 years after he died, something like that. And he said, so we don't think it was Wigglesworth. But if you're not familiar with it, Wigglesworth gave, an, somebody gave an amazing prophecy that there would come waves, there would come the Pentecostal wave, then there would come the charismatic wave, then there would be the wave of new churches. And, and each time it said, that, then he thought that would be the great revival. And then this would be the great revival, wasn't it? And then he said, but then what will happen is people of the word will come together with people of the spirit and that will be the great revival. I thought, wow. I mean, I've, I've been excited by that. In terms of coming back to the actual, actual question, I, I actually feel, I mean, if one leaves the Wigglesworth factor, I, I feel in the UK the hostility between the, the, those who are strong word and often cessationist and charismatic, the hostility which was so rampant, I found, in the 80s, 90s even maybe, I found it's largely gone in the UK. Mm. I mean, there's still pockets perhaps, but I think there's a lot of openness now. Mm. Uh, I've, been, I've been invited into situations that used to be cessationist, strongly hostile, uh, people who, who really spoke angrily against me personally in the 80s, 90s. I've been invited to speak to their councils, to speak on their platforms, there's, a, there's a, an openness that wasn't there. Now, in America, you've still got huge divides uh, because I think um, people feel that charismatics are crazy because they have American television. And so, really, they're not talking about charismatic life, as we would say, biblical life, full of the Spirit. They're talking about crazy American Christian television. And they say that's charismatic. And so, but I feel... That it's beginning, to, beginning to melt. I'm beginning. Uh, Toppy Collioso, I don't know if you know Toppy, leads one of our churches in London, great church. He was invited to speak by John Piper at uh, his Desiring God. Two thousand pastors present from a John Piper kind of reformed world, and uh, he was asked to speak on making room for the Holy Spirit in a reformed church. And he, he spoke very well. And when it, I listened to the thing recorded, he started a bit tentative for Toppy, but by the time he finished, he's really going. And, uh, 2,000 pastors there, and it was, it was greeted with applause, immediate applause. And he recommended my book, The Spirit Filled Church, as part of his talk. Well, I've had letters from guys since who got the book. They wrote to me, said, Toppy said it, I got it, I've read it, I've been on your website. I've been filled with the Spirit. I prayed. I, I now speak in tongues. What do I do with this? You know, and uh, 
uh, can we talk on Skype? And that's happened. And I, I'm, I'm finding that things are beginning to bridge in the States, here and there. But there's a lot of John MacArthur, MacArthur, is that right? John MacArthur, he, he did his conference last year, Strange Fire. He's written his book, Hostile to Spiritfield. Even tells Piper off for being open even. He said, what are you doing being open? You should be closed. So he's very angry. But it's nearly all about American, you know, the funny television stuff that you get in America. Um, and, and he thinks that's what spirit-filled is. So there's still, but I am finding bridges. I keep meeting real people of terrific Bible. I mean, they're so, so impressive, people who love scripture, and they're beginning to open to the possibility of the charismatic today. I love it whenever I can touch it because I just feel such an admiration for people who love the Bible. You know, some of them are profound Bible men, but they've come from a culture that's anti-charismatic, and that you gradually. But I would think in the UK, there's a lot of harmony now, and even even people who are not necessarily charismatic. I was uh, I was at the London Theological Seminary last month, speaking to the principal, very open. I was speaking to the editor of the Good Book Company. I've been in a few... This place in Poland I was in last week. It was very reformed, very reformed. Their their bookstore was fantastic. Uh, Wonderful, reformed, very, very good, conservative evangelical books. But, you know, you're beginning to talk about things of the Spirit. And I found people open, open, because they're very keen church planters. They want to plant churches. And so they've invented things like coaches and um, mentors. You know, we would say, well, we believe in the whole thing. We believe in apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Now, they don't believe in all that. So, you know, you're, but we want to plant churches, but you do it on your own. You're out there isolated. But maybe you can get a, a coach. You can phone through. We've got coaches who can help you or mentors. You can, so we think, no, your family with apostles helping you. So... It's slightly on different pages, but ever, ever such good people. And so it's a, I think we need to keep praying for it, even if it wasn't Wigglesworth. I think we should keep praying that it will happen because they've got a terrific contribution to make. Yeah, I think I think we always want to remember we're not trying to earn points. As we said earlier, we're grace people. We know I don't have to do these things to stay out of kind of condemnation or prove myself to God. So, you know, we're putting that aside. God loves us, hallelujah, anyway. So I want to read the Bible. Okay, I'm not doing it to impress God because Jesus has done that for me, hallelujah. But I found I've, I read the Bible, I keep changing the way I do it. So... Uh, for years I did a thing, I went to a meditation course when I was a young guy, Bible meditation course. I read my Bible in a particular way. I found it locked me into, uh, you know, I, I used to look for keywords and go off on tangents with a concordance and I found I enjoyed it. I, that was the way I meditated. I got a book and I'm writing my notes and did that every day. Um, and then I, I thought, no, I'm, I'm losing the grand sweep of the Bible. 
So I then got hold of the Murray McShane Bible reading program. That means you read the whole Bible through in a year and the New Testament twice and Psalms twice in a year. So to do that, you have to keep reading. And at first I found it very frustrating because I thought, I'm, I'm just having to rush through this. I can't get under it. I'm not getting to grips. And so I thought, oh, I'll do the year. At the end of the year, I thought, you know, I think I'll have another go. And I did it for five years. And I thought, by the end, I'm really quite enjoying this. It was a completely different way. I didn't get out of it in the same way. But I was I was amazed that each day you have four sections you read from, if you do what I did. And uh, so you'd, you'd read something in Numbers, something in the Psalms, something in Romans, something in Revelation or something. And and you suddenly thought, wow, that, I found it would it would speak to me. And I, I enjoyed it. I did it for five years. And then I thought, oh, no, I want to go back to. And the latest way I'm reading, I keep changing it deliberately to keep fresh. So latterly, I've, I've got a fairly demanding commentary or series of commentaries. And I, I've been going through New Testament epistles and just with a, a fairly fat commentary. I'm in 1 Corinthians at the moment. I just, I just finished going through Philippians. And I just go through it. I mean, I've got a book and they, I might do two or three verses a day. And, uh, and so I just keep changing my approach. And, and, and even from the beginning of this year, I went back to reading half Murray McShane. It's going to take me two years to do Murray McShane. And I'm doing this as well. So I, so I, I'm, I'm reading, I know I'm reading this morning. It was a chapter in Deuteronomy and a psalm. All right. But if I keep going, I'll get right through the Bible in two years. But at the same time, I'm working through 1 Corinthians. So I keep changing to keep, to just keep coming at it fresh. And I found that very, very helpful. Um, I think it's just, it is good to read. And I read other books as well in terms of, you know, I'm reading this book on Leviticus. I haven't quite finished. And, and I, I've got another book. I'm often, I just read all the time stuff to help me come at the Bible differently. Um, it's, I just find it stimulating and helpful. But, and then prayer, I honestly think the Lord's Prayer is a structure rather than I say, I don't say the Lord's Prayer, but I come saying Father, all right? So um, I think some people say, when you pray, start with confession. I think it's totally wrong. Uh, it sounds like, yeah, you know, clean the decks, then you can talk to God. But the Bible says Satan is a, an accuser. So I think this, when you start and say, Lord, I'm sorry for this, then Satan will come and say, what about that? Oh, yeah, and that, and that, and that. And so you just become sin-centered when you come to God, which is the last thing you want to be. You want to come to God, Father, hallowed be your name. So I come singing, I come thanking, I come entering his gates with praise, literally every day. Thank you, Jesus. Sing to God. I speak in tongues, sing in tongues a lot. I come, I want to, by one spirit we have access to the Father. So I, I sing in tongues a lot, I speak in tongues a lot, I praise him, I sing hymns, I have a hymn book, I sing our choruses. So a lot of my prayer time is worshipping, and then I come through, Lord, I want your name hallowed. I, I, come on, Lord, I want to see you revive, I want you to see you move. Come, Lord, come across us, come across London, come across this. I pray for our churches, I pray for the team leaders around the various streams. You know, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm praying. So I'll work through it, and I'll, and then I'll, uh, you know, sometimes it's a bit rushed at the end. Lord, don't leave me as a temptation. Lord, please deliver me from the world, the flesh, the devil. Lord, don't, 
Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from accidents. Deliver me from sickness. I pray these things regularly. Deliver me. Deliver me. So I use that shape. It's just a helpful shape. I don't think it's anything about that. Mm. But I've started I've, um, yeah. yeah. I, I agree about um, changing the way you uh, you read the Bible. And I like the Bible Speaks Today commentaries. Um, then sometimes I'll go through an, another book. I liked um, Paul Miller's uh, Loving Life and Praying Life are very good. Um, and at the moment, I'm just going through the, the, through the Psalms. Um, then I'll probably find another commentary or something. But yes, I agree about varying it. And uh, uh, I was wondering how to pray for all my numerous grandchildren. This is a bit of Is the, that's the end, is it? All right. That's the cafe announcement. Oh, I could just finish what I was saying? Yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, I was wondering how to pray for my 19 grandkids. And I just felt, um, I had this idea that I think was from God, to pray for a particular verse for each one of them. And uh, since there's 19 of them, and I've got them then with their parents and everything, it comes to 29 or 30 or thereabouts. Um, there's like every day uh, I pray specifically for one of them and I pray their verse for them. And that keeps me regularly praying for my family. So I just recommend that might be an idea you might like to pick up. And uh, I think Paul Miller, particularly in his book, The Praying Life, he talks about praying out scriptures for your family. I like, I like to do that. Mm. So both great books, The Praying Life and The Loving Life by Paul Miller. Uh, the Loving Life's about the life of Ruth. Stunningly good book. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Of course, they're on the same bookshop, you're saying. Um, <laughs>